Tonight we want to share with you a story that you may not be familiar with. It's a story of the 1980s taking place in Oregon. It was something of a nightmare, but in the boldest of ways in a very public setting, one which resulted in what could only be described as a hostile takeover of an area right here in America, one of a cult consisting of up to 50,000 followers that resulted in multiple assassination attempts, poisonings, and the largest bioterror attack on American soil. But it doesn't stop there. There was guns and drug running, fraudulent voting, illegal immigrant weddings, painted against the beautiful mountainous terrain of Oregon the hostile takeover of Antelope, Oregon. Join us tonight, if you dare, as we revisit that period of terror from 1981 to 1988. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. A little background about Antelope, Oregon. It's in Wasco County. And an estimated population of 47 people in 2012, and I think it's dwindled even more since then. Tiny, tiny. But it was originally a stage and freight wagon road stop. Howard Maupin came in in 1863 to operate the, a horse ranch and became caretaker of the stage station at that point in time, and then he began to raise cattle to provide meat for travelers. Uh, Nathan Wallace acquired the stage station in 1870, and he's accredited with being Antelope's first postmaster. Now, Antelope itself is considered to have been established in 1872, but it became incorporated as the city of Antelope in 1901. And I'm pretty sure you can probably fill in a few more details there, Eric. You're, you're our historian here. Well, so. actually, I was just sitting back here thinking, wow, Bill, I'm so impressed. You, you took the, the history aspect. <laughs> this story, actually, I neglected some of the oh, old history. You left out the older part, huh? I left out the older part. So I'm so proud of you. That's usually your job. <laughs> I got so enveloped in this story. It was some little blurb that flashed up on my uh, internet, Facebook feeds about a month ago, and I brought it to you. And the more research I did into it, I was just like, oh my gosh. Well, apparently, and I didn't know this until I started doing my research, there's a documentary, which we talked about, mm -hmm. on Netflix. It's like seven hours long, oh, it's, seven episodes it, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's long. It's, it's good, Which but, is wow. probably what threw this out there into the, the cosmos for you to see in the first place. And I believe that was done back in 2018. Yeah, but like you said, this the story here, I just thought you, when you when you said, hey, it's about a, this town gets taken over by a cult, like, well, that's kind of a weird story in itself, but the, surely, you know, there's, you know, cult activity, depending on how crazy they are. I was thinking, you know, maybe Jonestown without the massacre or something, but then it was, no, there was all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, and early on, it was related directly to Jonestown massacre, because, of course, this took place just a few years after that, and, and of course, we did a podcast on yeah. uh, the Joan, Jonestown. Um, however, there is one, there's several key characters, but one definitely um, that comes forward. Yeah, there, there's a villain in the story. Uh, a villainess, I'll even say. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and that is Ma Anad Sheila. And that's that's a mouthful. Her her real birth name was Sheila Silverman. And then the Ma Anad is a title, I guess, that uh, they would get once they came into this, and, and I'll say cult. Correct me if I'm wrong, but her role was basically a sec- secretary to the, the main guy, which was Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. I believe that is, yes, that's the and correct that's pronunciation. going to be a mouthful. And I, I think moving forward, we're just going to identify him as Bhagwan, which is what most people called him. And then we're just going to call her Sheila because, yeah. again, well, that's Sheila. how they identified her. But uh, Bhagwan, very interesting fellow. Uh, he was born uh, December 11th, 1931, and uh, he died January 19th of 1990. Uh, he was a distinguished uh, Indian, meaning directly from India. He had a long flowing beard, and he stated that he, was, he had become enlightened. He did not really like to be called a religious man because one of the things that he did that was so totally revolutionary or against anything, he didn't believe in any religion. Uh, Even in India, uh, where he had a huge following of thousands and thousands of followers, even India got tired of him (laughs) because he was not afraid to throw stones. Well, it was it was tensions in his native India, which eventually drove him and his followers to start looking for somewhere else. Yes. He, he would go and do these public speakings. And uh, from what I understood at one of these public speakings, and he could be surrounded by 1,000, 2,000 people at these. One of the gentlemen in the, in the uh, audience just stands up and has like a throwing knife and just throws <laughs> at him and just barely misses him. And, and that's kind of the time it's like, oh, okay, we're no longer welcomed here in my home country. When people are throwing knives at you. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, not, uh, that's, that's worse than the finger. <laughs> But he was somewhat of a mystic, a shaman, sensei, master. Some of these uh, words are used. Again, he believed in no one religion, but he believed in living a healthy, uh, well-established life, even with wealth. You know, we have a lot of the religious backgrounds. It's like, you know. Oh, and we're, we can talk about his wealth later. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But he basically just acknowledged people. He wanted people to be who they were. And as long as it did not cause harm to others. He was fine with that. And, and very open sexual relationships, I might also add, any of his followers. Well, basically the movement was based on positivity, joy, free love, like you said, an evaluation of science and mysticism over religious dogma, which is kind of a change if you think about cults in general. They usually lean into the religious, where he was more you know, scientific. And you do throw in the mysticism, so it wasn't pure science. But right. And that free love aspect, that comes up again and again as we tell this story. Now, a lot of people related his followers to those uh, 1970s wild hippies, you know, with their drug smoking and free sex and doing, you know, whatever. Well, in Antelope, Oregon, I think you mentioned the population at one time I saw on the sign said 40 people. Yeah, no, Antelope was a very small community. And even at that time, I, I think Antelope had been plagued by some natural disasters, a few bad winters, things like that. And they were kind of settling in, like they thought things were were turning around. They'd had some some bad luck, and you know things were were getting better. But again, it was a very very small community, and at this point, you know, it was no longer this this way station, this this stopping point. And you know, when a when a place like that is no longer being used, it it dwindles. Yes. So you had just a handful of people. It was becoming a ghost town. Yeah, you had like a post office and maybe a diner. I mean, there wasn't much there anyway, and so. Because of these tensions, these religious tensions in India, Bhagwan and, and Sheila, they start looking around. And I think even before the 80s, 
they had already been looking to to get out and trying to find a place. We got to find a new home. And, yeah, because it w- things were going bad. So eventually, they bought sixty four thousand acres of land previously known as the Big Muddy Ranch, which was about eighteen miles outside of Antelope. You heard correct. Sixty four. I think it was sixty four thousand two hundred and thirteen yeah, or yeah, something. It was it, over rounded sixty four thousand acres. And and you'd think, man, that's a lot of money. But apparently, Bogwan sold books, and his movement was such a big deal. They were making bank off of his his writings. Millions and millions. And so, as, as things expanded here at the ranch, they also started buying some some lots in in town in in uh, Antelope proper. Yes, which there created was, a lot of friction. Yeah, there were some underlying circumstances with some of that. But the idea was they wanted to create a utopia in the desert. And within the first year of buying out the ranch, they had over 7,000 people show up. So, I mean, this was, you know, I'd say a fairly popular movement. A lot of people involved. Right, right. They, now, let me hold you there. When they first came to Antelope, Oregon, first off, let me say those 40-some people, for the most part, were retired, hard-working, Christian, gun-toting oh, yeah. people. Yeah, red, red-blooded Americans. Red-blooded Americans, good way to put it. And the initial team that came was very friendly, went into Antelope, uh, was welcomed. They expressed that they were going to open a ranch, implying farming. Agricultural. And agricultural. Yeah, that, that was the original implication. That was the pitch. Yeah, it was going to be an agricultural thing, which obviously 7,000 people, that's, that's, a that's, big, that's a town, that's, that's a city. Yeah, and the initial team that came to set the precedence, these weren't just like common Joes. The, these were the top of their field in engineers and architects in uh, electrical, solar power grids, plumbing, every aspect you would need for a city. And that is kind of where things, the the original, and I'll say the original lie that was pitched was, yeah, we're going to open up a ranch. And then to your point, all these people, thousands (laughs) and thousands of people, busloads, there was uh, caterpillar bulldozers, big earth movers, they dynamited the mountain, they leveled areas, and it was very quickly that the town of Antelope's like, this this isn't going to be a ranch. Well, yeah, within a year, they were facing legal battles uh, with their neighbors there in in Antelope uh, over land use, like you said. I mean, they, they pitched it like it was an agricultural community, but you know, they were quickly, and then the land, it was zoned for agricultural use. Yes. So that was what the approved usage was. It was pretty quickly apparent. That was not what they were doing. They they wanted to establish the kind of infrastructure and services you needed with a town. That um, was actually Bagwan's uh, vision was yeah. a totally self-supported utopia communal uh, with up to 50,000 people that could be self-supportive there in the mountain and basically create their own city. They eventually changed the name from Big Muddy Ranch to Rajneeshpuram Commune. So, I mean, they were, they were changing. I mean, there was, it was a commune, obviously. I mean, that's not an agricultural thing. There Nothing anymore. about agricultural. And as more of these Rajneeshis, which is the word I'm going to use, I know they were offended by that particular word, but it was the, basically their followers. The common reference that I found in almost everything that I read. Which, by the way, always were read. That was their significant, you could Red, identify orange, them. Red, orange, pink, I mean, kind Those of shades of. Yeah. But yeah, as more and more of these Rajneeshis moved to Antelope, you know, more and more of the original inhabitants there were just, no, nah, they started selling their land and getting out. They wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, they were concerned. And, you know, within three years, they developed a whole community from the original ranch all the way up to the 7,000 people. Uh, and during a lot of this time, Rajneesh himself remained mostly isolated, hardly ever talked to anyone outside the commune. 
About the only time people saw him was when he would drive around in his Rolls Royce. Many, many I, Royals Royce. I, yes. I have, he owned 19 of them. Yes. The guy wasn't hurting for money. He was not, And those were armored and bulletproof glass. But he would drive around the community in this Rolls Royce and, and just wave to the people like, you know, the Pope or whatever. <laughs> and people would wave at him. And like that, was, that was about all they saw of him for years, like three or four years there. And I saw video footage of like where his followers, and this is in the town of Antelope. Like he'd be driving through. They would just all be lined up and they would just cover the entire hood with flowers and roses and, and all of this. He was, I mean, he was worshipped. He truly was. At this time, for most of this time, Sheila was acting as his mouthpiece. And we've already talked about her a little bit. Oh, yes. The villainess. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, Bagwan, uh, it was kind of a surprise. When he left India, he kind of took a, at first I took it as a vow of silence, but truly it wasn't. He just did not do public speaking. Yeah. So Sheila, his personal secretary, would meet with him on a daily basis, and and allegedly, uh, she would gain his insight. They would share what was going on, the plans, the factors, and then to your point, he would make appearances. And his common position, like if you asked anybody that was there to describe him, he always had his hands together, kind of in a, a blessing prayer mode, right up next to his beard and his chin, and he always had this smile. Looking on those pictures, this man, it was like very few times did he ever get his feathers ruffled. He was just so, just melancholy, peace. People said, again, he was charismatic. He kind of carried himself in a way that, you know, he was non-threatening. He had a good message. He was telling, I mean, in some cases, he basically telling people they wanted to hear, like, hey, we're going to take care of you. We're going to, you know, you guys can just live however. One story was of a. A 10-year-old boy who was document. he was telling his story later on. He said he was as drunk as he'd ever been at 10 years old. And then he was looking for his parents, and they were like, oh, well, they're over here in this area. And, you know, it was implied that was an area that was off limits to the children because there were things happening there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was kind of a crazy free love, like, you said, like a hippie commune kind of thing. We'd already kind of touched on this. Sheila, of course, she served as Bhagwan's mouthpiece since he kind of went to this silent stage for a four-year stretch. The Americans were a little disappointed because when Bhagwan was brought there, within a couple months after they started breaking ground, they were expecting this vocalist, this this person to help guide and lead them. And it was always Sheila was the one who they got the message from, took the orders from. And they thought that was that was a little odd, but they made no bones about it. This this Sheila character, oh my gosh. She would cuss like a sailor, tell you exactly what she thought. She had, there was no softening of blows. Um, She made it very clear to the people of Antelope that uh, regardless of what you were told about a ranch, no, we're starting a city. We will own a city. Well, things got so bad by like 19, April 1982, the old timers in town, they panicked and they voted to disincorporate. Yes. Because basically that wouldn't, would prevent the Rajneeshis from being able to take over the town. There wouldn't be a town to take over, and they would be able to retain the ability to kind of govern themselves a little bit. Well, and this just constantly went back, I I hate to use the word, but it was a pissing match. Yeah. Because Sheila wanted to get her own buildings and uh, stuff set up under the city. They shot her down. So then they moved into Antelope and started buying stores, printing presses, those type of things. Yeah, by the time they had this vote to disincorporate, there were so many Rajneeshis in town. They were actually outvoted, so the the movement failed, and in fact, they they effectively took over the government of the city at that point. In time. Yes, and again, it was not settled. That there was one restaurant in town, 
And they said the locals had been going there for like 50 some years. Well, they bought that and then they staged and changed all the menu, of course, to Indian yeah. cuisine. They tore down street signs that had been there since the established town and, of course, put, a, a, we'll say, an Indian flair on everything. <laughs> and I mean, so this was just like blatant, just trying to piss yeah. off the citizens. And it worked. Well, in, in their time, when they, as they took over and as they moved and they expand, I have here that they had killed thousands of sheep, which I don't know if that was just to eliminate the herds or whatever, destroyed numerous sheds, and started to build their own utopia, which would eventually include a 145-room hotel, a boutique, a casino, an elegant restaurant, an airstrip, malls. I mean, they had everything. <laughs> However, this all came at a cost, and you know they were. it was demanded that they work 12 hours a day, seven days a week to accommodate all this. And they had to have total obedience to Rajneesh. Now, whether that was total obedience to Rajneesh or total obedience to Sheila. Yeah. And sometimes it's a hard line to draw. Like you said, Rajneesh wasn't too very involved in a lot of that stuff. No. And that later proved very good for him in a legal aspect. (laughs) (laughs) But about this time frame, a former citizen, and I don't know if he actually was from Antelope, but at least the, the area, a Bill Bowerman. Now, he was a gentleman who actually was a co-founder of Nike, Nike tennis shoes, Nike sportswear. He had money, and he saw what was going on here. He was affiliated with this town, this surrounding area. He starts a committee, a group called the 1,000 Friends of Oregon, and furnished them and the town with the strong financial rebuttal, and basically was the pushback that Sheila absolutely hated. Well, they they said that the the city violated state land use laws and again it was zoned agricultural they were clearly outside the scope of that i believe uh, at some point in time the attorney general was was asserting that the this group was actually an arm of a religious organization and that incorporating as a town actually violated the principle of a uh, separation of church and state yes so i mean essentially they were trying to say that everything they were doing was was illegal a lawsuit was filed by the state of oregon uh, to invalidate the city's incorporation uh, many attempts to expand the city were legally blocked, and and again that kind of pushed them to start taking over Antelope. I mean, the more if we can't build it, we'll yeah. just take over what you got. Yeah, the more they they prohibited the expansion of Rajneeshpuram, the more the Rajneeshis went into Antelope proper and ended up just taking over the town. Now, by 1984, uh, their plans had been just totally cut off, cut off, cut off for for starting their own city. They finally were able to produce enough citizens there in their commune that they held their own, some might say, mock elections, uh, where they established, they they couldn't have a police force, so they decided to have a freedom force. (laughs) Now, they drove around in police cars, and I will just say they terrorized the few citizens of Antelope, so they would drive in with their police cars and spotlight in the people's <laughs> bedrooms at night. They'd turn on the, the cherry lights on the top. Uh, they would park across from uh, ones that were really strong-willed, strong-voiced, and opinionated, and take pictures of them, videotape them, and just harassment. And so they kept contacting Oregon, the, the citizens of Antelope, saying, something's got to give. You guys have got to do something. This is becoming a very hostile environment. On September 18th, 1984, they held a vote, and they actually renamed the town to Rajneesh, Oregon. They had enough influence in local politics and government at that point in time, they just renamed, renamed Antelope to Rajneesh. And that, I think, is where Sheila then kind of handpicked the mayor for their yeah. town. Uh, his name was 
David Barry Knapp. Uh, he was also known as Krishna Deva, born in 1948. He was a former businessman and disciple of Ragnish, and uh, he was the first mayor there of the town, uh, all the way until 1985, where he kind of fell out of favor with Sheila. And I will say in some of the video footage and stuff, she was quite mean to this guy. Well, I mean, I mean, she's getting, as far as her role in the story, she's getting ready to step up into that prime villain role. Well, around the same time they were orchestrating these elections and votes and things like that, the Rajneeshis were also, uh, had taken to, they had also taken to the streets across the country to oh, begin I recruiting this part. Uh, transients or homeless people. Homeless people. Uh, they promised them free transportation, free food, and, of course, sex. Mm-hmm. And, and in the course of this, nearly 4,000 transients responded. They brought them to uh, Rajneesh Puram. And I heard that could have been as high as 7,000. Yes. But, but they say within a year, only 200 of those remained. Now, I believe there was a reason for that, which yes. you apparently, oh, you, you know a little more oh about gosh, that one. Yes. Well, we'll backstep. Before they announced exactly what they were doing, Sheila, I, I want to... I want to paint this picture so people can understand how she portrayed herself. She goes on national TV because, of course, all this bickering back and forth for a couple of years, a lot of the national TV news networks and stuff, they were all out there interviewing. And Sheila, any any advertising she could get in the limelight, I mean, she was there. So she goes on, and I don't remember which, uh, which show it was. She was on Phil Donahue. She was on many talk shows. But I think this was just like a, a news broadcast. And they always played the role of the poor me you know poor me we come to america we we seek our freedom of our religion and and these bigots of oregon and in particular antelope oregon just continually shut us down they say that the constitution is not for us and that we are 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 the red skins and we are red dressed and they don't want us and they don't desire us well we're going to set an example to lead by example and the news and uh interviewer was like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that, Sheila? And she goes, she was like, we are going to set by an example and tomorrow the world will know. And so it was all portrayed out. There was this big mystery. What in the world are they going to do? It was fleets of Greyhound buses to various cities all over uh, that area of Oregon and picking up homeless people. And by the way, they also offered the homeless people two beers a day. That was all part of the deal. They had tickets. They lined up. Hey, you know, I don't know what brought you out here. We're going to give you a fresh start. We're not going to judge you. We're going to take you in. We're going to care for you. We're going to offer you food, medical, housing, you know, everything that Bill was addressing here. And obviously, I mean, the buses were full. And here the poor people, the 40-some population of Antelope, Oregon, are watching these Greyhound buses just one after one after another after another just coming in and thousands of transient homeless people establishing here. It went great. For several months. And what the whole reasoning later came out was she was getting the citizenship population higher to get more voters yeah. to help take over. Now, that was in the back of her mind. So, unfortunately, no, it was not to help fellow man, which that, yeah. that would have been great. When the election time started coming close, of course, she had to bus all these homeless people in to the various cities and get them voter registration cards because they had relocated from all over, di- different states even. And this information had leaked out to the local government and authorities, and they're like, we can't have this. This We know what's going on here. They're going to try to not only overtake Antelope, but eventually 
Sheila stated she will be on the state Oregon board, basically, and she will be the first of many, and they're going to take over Oregon and eventually the United States. I mean, again, this is her just, you know, right out there. Well, so they started busing the homeless people in, and they had guards stationed. They would not let the homeless people get their voter registration cards. They had found a loophole with the state of Oregon and declared that because of such an influx and such a growth rate, they were afraid that something was awry. So they just simply weren't going to accept any new voters. So they bust them all right back to the, the commute. And around this time, we're getting close to election time, we're, we're trying to vote in some Rajneeshis. You have an incident that happens in, and I'm going to say Dallas, Oregon, D-A-L-L-E-S. I think they pronounce it Dalis or something. It, it's, it, well, it looks it's like the Dallas. Delise is yeah. actually the name of it. Okay, well, we'll say Dalis and then we'll go with that. Uh, but there were 751 people poisoned yes. in Dalis, Oregon. And when this was investigated, what it turned out was that the Rajneeshis had deliberately attacked local politicians using salmonella, salmonella. as the, the, the agent of choice. That they grew in their own clinics later came yeah, it was, forward. It was first delivered through glasses of water to two of the city commissioners. And then at numerous salad bars and in salad dressing in 10 local restaurants. And this was just considered the trial run. Yes. But they would literally take this, I think they said it was a brown liquid. Well, somebody had come forward in court later and said they had like a tube or a pipe down their sleeve. Yeah. And so they would go in and as the people would, I guess it was customary, they might put their hands together and give a blessing over the food. They go into the salad bar and do this. Yeah. And then just kind of shake their elbow a little into bit. The, and, into the salad or the and salad dressing. with salmonella. But 751 people, uh, 45 hospitalized, but luckily there were no fatalities. Now, of course, that was to keep, that was a trial to keep people from voting. Now, they also tried to introduce pathogens into the water system as well. Yes. But that that didn't pan out the way they had hoped. And it it was revealed eventually that this group of of followers was led by Sheila. Mm -hmm. And, And again, like you said, it was an attempt to incapacitate voting. Now. Uh, they did this in the hope that their candidates would be able to win because only their voters would be able to attend to vote the 1984 Wasco County elections. This is consi- this is the first bioterror attack on U.S. soils, and it's can still considered one of the largest. And again, this was just a baby step trial. This they yeah. they had much bigger, they had plans. bigger plans. Now the locals, of course, immediately blamed the Rajneeshis for what was going on, and it actually had the exact opposite. It turned it turned people out in droves. Like 93% yeah. of the voter the, the population idea, came in. With the idea of, you know, we got to outvote these crazy folks. They're out here trying to poison people. And it actually had the exact opposite result of what she was aiming for. Now, a couple loose ends to tie up. They tried to pollute the water system. You'd kind of mentioned that. Later on in court, and again, once they started getting the, the main head people, they they didn't try to hide it. They just, when they went to court, I plead guilty. Yes, I tried this assassination attempt. Yes, so we tried to poison the water. <laughs> First, they had tried to bring in beavers to the open water area where their fresh water, drinking water came from because they had read that beavers carry a lot of different diseases. That was foiled because at least the, the people of Oregon had these, they described it as like a real strong uh, cage wire put up around to keep, you know, debris or anything from going in so the beavers couldn't get through so again this person's on trial and he goes so then sheila asked us well let's go hunt the beavers down so they killed the beavers 
chopped them up and then were trying to press the entrails and pieces of beaver stuff down into the water. And that didn't have such a great deal. So then they moved forward with the salmonella. Now, during all of this, you know, Sheila's got all these thousands, you know, 3,000, as many as 7,000 homeless people that now the commune is providing for. And now, how do I say this? They're not really helping her any. Yeah, they, they, they didn't get the vote, so their people they, don't end up in power. The homeless people, which they are still called the homeless of the commune. They weren't even like totally welcome in. <laughs> you can have a place, we'll feed you, we'll take care of you, but you're still the homeless. They started getting irate because they'd made all these promises had been made. You will be treated like individuals. You will be able to vote and all this. And then obviously that didn't work out. So a lot of these homeless people, unfortunately, were psychotic. They needed medication. Uh, they were not getting that proper treatment. They become angry. They started burning and tearing down inside <laughs> the commune. So what does Sheila do? A flashback of something we mentioned before. Let's get them all drinks. So the two beers that they were promised, she has her, her clinic doctors taint with medicine oh. to sedate the homeless people. Not quite as bad as the whole yeah. don't drink the Kool-Aid, but pretty close. Then once all this anger and, and animosity of the homeless, you know, they are all just subtle. They load them up on buses <laughs> in the middle of the night and trek oh. thousands of homeless people out and just basically they took them to park benches. They took them to alleys uh, off the sides of different streets and then just kick them out. And then so now Oregon is dealing with one of the biggest influx of new homeless people. <laughs> And now all of the citizens of all these towns, we got all these people that some of them were very mentally unstable. I mean, they were cutting themselves. They had glass. They were breaking in. And that was another whole fiasco that the you know, state of Oregon was having to deal with. So as we move into 1985, the Rajneeshis are yet again, their worst elements are, are working against them, if you will. Yep. A group of high-ranking Rajneeshis conspired to assassinate Charles Turner who was at that point in time United States Attorney for the District of Oregon. So, guess who's heading up this little operation? I'm going to say Sheila. Sheila, Rajneesh's second-in-command, she assembles this group. And, and this is after Turner was appointed to investigate illegal activity at Rajneesh Puram. So they're already on the radar. People are already looking into them. There's something going on here. So she gathers up this group. This group includes Sally Ann Croft, Chief Financial Officer for the Rajneeshis, Susan Hagen, their Head of Security, Catherine Jane Stork, who volunteered herself to commit the murder. She's like, I'll kill the guy. Yep. Uh, and Phyllis McCarthy, who was fourth in command, and co-conspirators Alma Potter, Carol Matthews, Phyllis Caldwell, and Richard Langford. Now, two of this group purchased false IDs and uh, some handguns, and the idea was they planned to murder Turner near his workplace in Portland, Oregon. Now, this plot was never carried out and was only discovered later as a result of federal investigation into the bioterror attacks. Yes. So this was basically only thwarted because they'd already done some shady illegal crap anyway yeah it's like an onion with many many stinky <laughs> layers now also during this time frame we have the poor citizens of antelope oregon stuck in the middle of all of this they had been complaining to their state trying to ask for help and often early on especially they were said look you know they're not doing anything le illegal i agree with you we don't like where it's going but we can't really do anything at this point in time, after all of this is taking place, these people are like 
yeah. screw this. We are taking up arms. Well, and, and you know, uh, investigations into things like this can take years. Oh, yes. So, yeah, like the, the locals are like, no, there's something going on, and, and these cases are moving forward, but... We're the ones but, yeah. adjacent to this ranch. So they go on TV and radio and basically throw out this challenge to Sheila, who is just at this point, they just despise. And they said, we have had enough of such trickery. We have taken up arms and we will defend what is ours. They made no bones about it, same way Sheila has often done in the past. And uh, they became the very definition for Sheila. She had told everybody that they were so super bigoted and all this. They really played the part here. I mean, I can't say I necessarily blame them, but they were falling into her theater stage. Well, then in turn, Sheila replied on national TV again. This this woman, she's like, we invite you. And for every one of my people that you hurt, I will take 15 of your heads. <laughs> that was the words that were used. You know, for, so we have this whole thing. This, this is just getting spiraling way out of, out of control. So after all of this is going on, Sheila kind of tucks her tail, runs back. They share video footage of, of their daily firearms out on the range shooting, trying to show empowerment. But she's seeing that again and again, she's getting shut down. You know, the poisoning scheme, the salmonella, the, the trickery with the votes. At this point, they start going overseas and they're bringing over citizens, uh, illegal immigrants from India, marrying two people on the commune to get more citizens in to vote. And then, of course, they go along their merry ways. It was all fake, fake weddings. And she reveals herself to her most devoted this time in a way she's never done before. She is probably the most untrustworthy person around, but she trusts no one else. She doesn't even trust uh, Bhagwan. I mean, her, her sensei, her master. She comes forward one night and calls her closest advisors. Most of them are female. Uh, to her home, her complex, where they all live, her most trusted. And she shares with them that she has been wiretapping and basically recording everything, almost in every building on the commune, including Bhagwan's personal house. She has interrupted a, a cassette recording where Bhagwan is speaking to his doctor and says, if I were to leave this earth, meaning if I were to die, could you assist me in the most subtle, non-painful manner? And the doctor replies, you know, certainly we could. It would be three drugs. We would do it in progressive steps. Goes through the details. She plays that uh, sound clip for her most trusted, and she says, I've been recording all of you for, you know, the last three plus years. (laughs) And I'm worried about Bhagwan, that this crazy doctor is now trying to take him from us. You know, he is a holy man. He's a magnificent man and they're going to steal him. We must do something. Who among us will step forward and kill this doctor? So here's another assassination attempt. And one of the gals says, I will do it. From what I understood that night or the next night goes in with a syringe, goes to this big party gathering where this doctor is walks up to him, injects him in one of his buttocks, and he immediately knows he's a doctor. I mean, he, he understands what's going on. And they, they have her in court later on, and she goes, I cannot believe I acted this way, but this was how devout we were to Sheila. He, she said, I injected him, and by plans, I threw the syringe off to one side. 
there was a person there to get it and quickly got rid of the evidence and, and swept it away. And then I pursued the doctor. I kind of pushed him away in the privacy. And I was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Tell me, speak to me. What's going on? Can I help you? Basically to the point of where he starts to collapse. And she goes, I turned and just walked away from him to die. So all of this is happening. They come back together the next night thinking they were successful. However, the doctor, good doctor lives. And that is what kind of tells Sheila I just burnt some bridges here that we're never going to be able to repair. We need to leave and we need to leave now. And so her group then, she takes uh, by airplane and they leave in the middle of the night. Yep. September 14th, 1985, they, they suddenly leave. And and in the following weeks, Rajneesh kind of comes out into the public. Uh, he, he starts ha- calling press conferences where he accuses Sheila and this group of having committed all these different crimes. Like and now all of a sudden he's not silent. He's coming forward now. Yeah. And apparently this was all unknown to most people within the commune or even outside. They didn't know what all she was involved in. Yeah. The, the attempted murder of the doctor, wiretapping and bugging, Salmonella, Rajneesh, poisoning, yeah, poisoning of public officials. Apparently there were some accounts of arson. I mean, she was, she was doing it all. And, and under his name. Yeah. Claiming that, it, you know, in his name and when obviously this was not, you know, that, th- he wasn't supporting it. He didn't know any of this was going on. Nobody yeah. knew. Most people didn't know this was and going on. And I truly on. believe that. I really do. I don't think he did understand everything was going on. Well, as things obviously begin to unravel, Bhagwan comes forward, as Bill said. He starts talking to his people. He just totally outs Sheila. I had no idea. I've been tricked. You've been tricked. The she-devil. Uh, she didn't even have, basically, the courtesy to tell me goodbye face-to-face. She She took one of our planes and her... And her little horde of, I think there was a total of like 20, 21 of them. Yeah, something like that. 15 to 20 folks. Flew out of here in the middle of the night, turned her back on you, you know, left all of us. You know, this is a horrible person. And some do believe, and some came forward in court later, that he basically put a hit out on her, (laughs) which is very unlike him, I will say. So I'm not sure what to believe there. But again, we've saw this with other cult activities. It may have simply been some of the followers you know, saying, well, Bhagwan's not asking of this, but I know this needs to occur. So out of loyalty and respect, I will go do this. At this point in time, federal, national, public, all levels of authorities, DEA, uh, FBI, the Highway Patrol, they all were getting onto this. And then they got this super break. And it was the first mayor that was appointed (laughs) by Sheila who now left him in the dark, literally. Um, She took off on a plane and left him. He decides to stage exit, and he runs to the federal authorities. And in a plea bargain, basically, I'll tell you whatever you need to know. I was there. I heard her planning for the poisoning, the salmonella, assassination attempts, all of this. Just don't press charges against me. Yeah. And so all of this just steamrolls. And at this point in time, they didn't know anything about drug embezzlement or gun, gun smuggling. And he was just going off like a water fountain spout, just more and more and more. So now the federal government, DEA, FBI, Highway Patrol, they're like, we know they're heavily, heavily armed. There's going to be huge amount of casualties, but we have got to go in. We've got search warrants and we are going to arrest people. But at the same time, they also learned by leaked out information, Sheila and some of her group had escaped. So now if they didn't, 
do a precise, basically, attack at the same time on both of them, they were afraid that one or the other, or maybe both, would get away. That got to be a little easier because information was leaking both ways. <laughs> Bogwan learned that the DEA FBI were lining the highways and surrounding the ranch. And so he knew he needed to get out of town. So he does exactly what Sheila does. And he gets on one of his Lear jets at his private airport and his doctor and some of his most trusted. He just accuses, you know, look, Sheila left all you guys here in this mountainous terrain. Hey, guess what I'm doing? I'm leaving you too. take off in the middle of the night. His departure sort of marks the end of Rajneesh Puram. Yes. The whole commune, this, this all starts to fall apart after that. Which, I mean, makes sense, you know, when, you're, when your leader ups and runs off. Yeah, both leaders or you, you, however, yeah, you, mommy and daddy are fighting. So, yeah, essentially that marks the end of Rajneesh Puram. So, that kind of takes off a little bit of a load for the government thinking, okay, well now maybe since they are separated against the commune, maybe now there won't be all these, you know, thousands of deaths that they were trying to figure out a way to avoid. So, they start figuring out where he is going. And he actually has two Lear jets that one of the ranchers reported to a federal officer. The federal, the feds had come in and said, if you notice anything unusual, especially the next couple nights or days, let us know. He was out herding his cattle. And it, from what I understand, it was about sunset and two Lear jets swoop in low. Within a period of 20 to 30 minutes, they take back off again. So he reports this. And of course, that is Bhagwan and his group leaving. The, the jets separate, and I believe it was in Tennessee. They stop and fuel at two different airports in Tennessee and then make their way across the United States to uh, North Carolina. And it is there that they think, okay, they will both have to stop and get gas again. So we are going to intervene. And they were able with a little bit of complication. But uh, they handcuff ba uh, Bhagwan. They get the doctor, they get his people, and at the same time, they have tracked down Sheila and her group in Germany. They've been hiding out in a restaurant on an island, and so they're trying to orchestrate this at well, but the Germans aren't quite as cooperative as just like handing her over. For one, I guess she was within like 20 or 30 uh, minutes of a border that she could totally escape on, and then there was no way they could extradite her. But they finally got that all worked out. The next piece of information I will say was a bit disturbing to me, and that was how they treated Bhagwan, this older, elderly, very, for the most part, peaceful acting uh, gentleman. They get him in North Carolina, and obviously they're going to bring him back to Oregon for trial. Three weeks later, three weeks they took to parade this old man around. He stayed in, I can't tell you, it was like 12 different prisons. Man. Uh, it was a circus show. It was a parade. It was like the cat carrying the mouse. Look what we caught. <laughs> in one of the prisons, they actually put him in a cell with a huge man who had sexually transmitted diseases, and there were no guards left at the door. So you can kind of see where this is going. Almost, it was just shy of three weeks, they finally parade him back to Oregon. And the second mayor, who is also a lawyer, personal lawyer to Bhagwan and of the city, meet him there. And he is furious. He's just like, this is just more power. The government, United States government is just using to flaunt. They're breaking down this old man. And Bhagwan did state that, you know, his body was not doing well. I think at this point he was, he had to be mid sixties, pushing 70. He was scared. 
Uh, he was afraid of what they were going to do to him. He still said, I didn't know all this stuff was going. He actually opened the commune uh, or commune and all their paperwork to the feds trying to get as big a case they could against Sheila. But then they started uncovering some stuff say, possibly did, on him. Did he eventually get a settlement with the government? Basically, he got to walk away scot-free as long as he just left the United States. Yeah. He fled the country on something to do with like federal immigration charges or something. Yes. But he went to his lawyer and he says, what should I do? And the lawyer, again, straight shooter, very loyal follower, said, look, Bhagwan, the United States government has went to this detail and worked this hard to get you. If you win this, they're never going to stop coming for you. I mean, and this is the last three weeks parade is just proof of that. So that's when he decided, basically, I will plead guilty on everything. From what I understand, the state of Oregon confiscated basically everything he had of value and then basically said, you leave the United States and never set foot back here again. And, and he, he did. He went back to India. So that was kind of a weird, strange turn of events. But I'm three weeks to parade this old man around to stay in different prisons. and uh, Come on, that, that don't seem right. By the end of 1985, in the, the November elections, the remaining residents, including original residents and even some Rajneeshis, vote 34 to 0 to revert back to the name of Antelope. And the U.S. Postal Service never officially recognized the name change in the first place. So it was always Antelope, Oregon. As <laughs> always far as Antelope, concerned. Oregon. Now, Antelope today is abandoned, essentially. The, the Rajneeshpuram commune, you know, there, there's pictures of the airstrip uh, with weeds growing out of the tarmac and all these abandoned buildings. Some of them have been burned over the years. But part of it is still very much alive. Well, Antelope itself, the little town is still there. Yeah. The uh, Ragnishi compound uh, actually was put up for sale for $28 million by the state of Oregon until 1988 when basically they sold it at a private auction and it went from $28 million to $4.5 million and they sold it. Uh, from what I understand, there are two different, uh, there's a public school that is now on part of the uh, commune. And of all things, there is a religious retreat, uh, but it is like a Christian group for teenagers, troubled teens. And I saw some video footage of that. I mean, they've got water parks built and swimming pools, wave pools. I mean, just all kinds of things. And they, they went back and they interviewed citizens of Antelope and they're like, well, that kind of came full circle. You know, we went from non-religion to another religion, and they're like, but we'd much rather have these, these teenagers here than, <laughs> you know, th than all the others, the Ragnishis. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of came a, a full circle, for sure. Uh, they did get to Germany. They did arrest Sheila and uh, three individuals of her group. They all stood uh, court. They all pled guilty. Sheila and all of them, with the exception of Bhagwan, served time in prison. They interviewed Sheila, I think it was in 2016, 2017 timeframe when she got out. And uh, they're like, so what do you plan to do with your life now? And she's like, well, for, for one, uh, I want to shed this guilt that, and this, that's been applied to me that, uh, you know, I, I'm a bad person. In my belief and my customs in my country, once you are guilty and you serve your term, you get a fresh start. That's where I want to be today. Now, Bhagwan, he returned back to India, where he was welcomed with open arms. Thousands and thousands of followers cared for him constantly. He did ask that he no longer be identified as Bhagwan. That was part of the time he spent in America in the title. 
So they said, well, what, you know, what should we call you then? You know, mentor, guru, what should we call you? And he, he didn't really have an answer, but uh, they started calling him Oso was the new title, Oso, which is a Japanese term meaning mentor, teacher, sensei. And he accepted that. Um, now he went on, uh, he died on January 19th, 1990. And his American doctor who had traveled there with him basically called a special meeting there in one of their temple shrines uh, to about 1,200 people and said, uh, you know, we lost a great man. He has passed on. The enlightened one, his teachings are still alive in his books. Still selling those books, by the way. (laughs) Uh, There's actually been a regrowth in uh, interest of his teachings here in the past five years. But he addressed the group and he said, Rest assured, I spent my last moments with him, and uh, he went just as beautifully as you could have expected him to go. And there was a grand parade, thousands and thousands of people, where basically he was carried on a flatboard where his body was displayed and covered with flowers, all except for that smiling face. And they had his hands positioned there on his chest, and they did a uh, traditional funeral where basically um, it was by fire. They put him up on a, on a pedestal of flowers and logs around and they chanted and partied throughout the night. And that was the end of, of the, uh, the Bhagwan series, I guess you would say. Yeah. That's uh, the, the, the legal stuff alone. Like you said, when I started researching this and I found out about the bioterror and the, and the assassination plot, I was just yeah like, wow, I didn't expect that. And I mean, in 1988, I graduated high school in 1988. So, I mean, wow, you're old. I am old, <laughs> but honestly, I won't say I, I don't remember any of it because with watching some of the old news broadcasts, you know, there was a little bit of memories there, but I had no idea that this took place on American soil. And again, this is, you know, a lot of history that's not taught, but, um, you talk about a hostile takeover <laughs> and I mean, it could just as easily happen again today. Well, we hope that uh, we have enlightened you on a few things that have taken place here on the American soil that some may have known, some may have not. But we hope that you have enjoyed yet another tale of nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. Stop it. Stop. Be dirty. In the name of love. And they promised them free transportation, free fruit. Free fruit. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it probably. Did. Sure. Yeah. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Ravens Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family 
for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and we'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.